Hello everyone, my name is Terry Roy and I am the host over at Faithful Film Finet where I review movies. I have always loved movies, I've always been awe-inspired, and I've always just rambled and rambled on about movies. Even drove people crazy, even my family, they're always telling me, stop talking about movies. So think about something else. Talk about something else. And so I'm here to, today to show you and the world my passion for movies. What uh, got you interested in starting the uh, Better 2 podcast? Um, I used to be a disc jockey. And after I was interviewed last year about fear um, on a podcast, I actually talked about a moment that I told my husband that it was better to love him and lose him than never to have loved him at all. And my book series was already labeled The Better Two, which I didn't think about at the time. But I realized that everybody's got a better two moment. And so I Googled it, and I saw page upon page of different takes on it. And that's why I said, okay. And then it just, and I realized, well, your books are also The Better Two Burnout series. So it's natural branding. So it was more about people sharing their stories. How come you uh, put D.M. Needham as your name instead of just Donna? I went with D.M. instead of Donna because of the fact that um, when I wrote My Days with the Dark Muse, it's written from a guy's point of view. And so, at least for that time being, I thought, hey, you know, if somebody picks this book up, they're going to think a guy wrote it. They're not going to be swayed at going, oh, a woman wrote this book. So that's why I did it, because you couldn't tell at the time. Right. What got you wanting to write it from a man's perspective instead of a woman's perspective? I've always written duets for the most part, uh, even as a hobby. I would write a girl's point of view and a guy's point of view, and this all started because it was supposed to be a side piece. It's just supposed to be a marketing thing. I wasn't even going to turn it into a book, and I started writing, and re it was a blog, and Rehab Center started liking my post so at that moment i'm like well they must think he's real so if they think he's real i might as well do it and i did i decided to turn it into a book and i took the blog down and i had people that had read nikki six's heroin diaries compare it to that a couple people and i was like okay so then i picked up heroin the heroin diaries and i'm like oh my book's tame compared to that yeah so i mean it was just it was something that it came to me when i was waiting for my husband pick him up from dialysis and it just flowed naturally and it got really dark and twisted and you know yeah. you wouldn't expect that from a girl or a woman yeah what uh got you passionate about writing i've always used stories as an escape even as a kid when my parents got divorced i our wars was my my go-to and <laughs> i used to want to be princess leia and then you know Battlestar galactic came about and I inserted myself into that story, and I inserted myself into another TV show, and slowly but surely, I mean, I would take a sheet of loose leaf paper and create an apartment complex and have little stories for these people. I wasn't writing them down at the time, but they were in my head. And when I was in high school, one of my friends was like, oh, let's write some rock star stuff. It wasn't really rock star stuff, but, you know, their favorite band, and that kind of set me on my path. So, yeah, I mean, I've always, I've always been creative in my head. The uh, different bands that you mention in your book, are you actually a fan of their music, or do you just 
want to direct them into the story. Uh, like which ones? Uh, Queen and Beatles. I like Queen. Uh, um, I grew up with Queen. I mean, I grew up with the Beatles too. But are they my go-to bands now? No. Um, there are certain songs by Queen that still resonate. And same thing with the Beatles. I I kind of lost my interest for the Beatles. I know sacrilege. Um, <laughs> but my first real boyfriend. I met him because we were in a band together. And all he wanted to do, and the only records he ever owned that he would play, there was only two two things, and that was the Beatles or Jim Croce, or Jim Reeves, excuse me, Jim Reeves. Sometimes Jim Croce, so three. And it was the Beatles all the time, every day, and I was just kind of like, there's still a couple of songs that I like by the Beatles, but when you're dating somebody and that's all they listen to, it kind of just goes, okay, I never have to hear this again. I'll be okay. Right. Like I said, there's some songs I still like, but others there's just like uh, uh, so. my uh, sister always was obsessed with the Hey Jude song. Okay. <laughs> Not a bad song. I mean, you know, Come Together was a song from my childhood that my dad and I dubbed the pizza eating song because every time we went out to eat pizza, that was on a jukebox. So I mean, there's certain songs like that that still hold meaning to me. But then there's other songs just like, no, I've played that enough. I don't want to hear it. Have you ever been to a Queen concert before? No. Oh. No, the the, the closest that I got to a Queen concert, but they were in England, was Live Aid. I mean, they played Live Aid. I was in Philadelphia at Live Aid, but I wasn't. I didn't get to see them live, so. I did see Zeppelin live. That was pretty much a nightmare, but. Not, not so much a nightmare because they're playing. It was just the crush of the crowd. I mean, at one point, I wasn't standing on my own feet. Wow. Because this was like the first time they gotten back together in years, and it was just a mad push. And I wasn't even there to see them. I know, again, sacrilege. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I was in the crowd waiting for another act, and it just, I thought I was going to pass out. It was bad. But anyway. That's crazy. So, I uh, read that you, uh, Used to be a uh, on uh, air personality. What got you interested in talking on the radio? Uh, I won a pizza from a dish jockey, and um, him and I became friends. And he would, he told me to come on into the station, and I'm like, okay. And I mean, I would talk to him on the phone. He's like, you have a really good voice, and I'm like, yeah, okay. His his exact words were, you have a boner quality about your voice, and I'm like, okay. Whatever. I was married and had kids, and we became friends, and um, I started coming to the station, the kids would come to the station, and we'd hang out, and I went on vacation, I came back, and he's like, tell my boss about you, I'm like, uh-huh, he's like, he wants to talk to you, I'm like, alright, strangest interview I've ever had in my life, because I barely said, he barely said anything, I did all the talking, um, I came to the station Tuesday, and by Friday evening I was on air. Yeah, that must have been so, really uncomfortable. What? That must have been really uncomfortable, that whole it, interview. It was, because you're sitting there and you're like, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was uncomfortable. But, I mean, it was it was a trip, and, I, you know, I talked to a dish jockey yesterday for my podcast. He was in radio for 10 years, and he's talking about how he spent X number of dollars and went to school, broadcasting school. And so we started talking, and I'm telling him how I got in the radio. He goes, I like your story better. <laughs> so, Anything that helped made you feel better about yourself, thing you're passionate about? I guess if I was going to say,
say it, it does go along with what you said about passion about. I remember talking about my writing and one of my friends telling me, you light up when you talk about it. You're passionate about it. I can see the passion in your face. This is something that you really love doing. So that kind of, that I would say would be a compliment. And I guess as an author, one of the biggest compliments I've gotten besides that, they couldn't believe it got, a girl wrote that was, um, I couldn't put the book down. I read it in one sitting. I, I was going to do housework and stuff, but I couldn't. I just ended up getting engrossed in the book. I meant to read it for a half hour, and by the time I was done, it was dinner time. <laughs> so to me, that says, okay, you can actually write a story and tell a story, and it en engaged me enough that I didn't want to put it down. So those are compliments that, that mean something to me. Okay. Something that doesn't mean something to me, and I, I think, and I know you're a guy, so I'm not, no offense, but when girls get DMs that say, hi, gorgeous, that's not really a compliment that goes far, and I know guys think it does, and some women may think so, but it's just like, mm, if I were 20-something, maybe that might go far, but no. Since you brought that up, what's a compliment that girls usually like to hear from you guys? Sliding into a girl's DM and saying, you're gorgeous, or hi, lovely, or... It feels phony, and I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, if you're a guy and you're trolling and you're just going to say, hey, you know, even you reaching out, I was hesitant because it's just like I, you know, dare I say there's enough bad people on the Internet that you just kind of go, uh, yeah, sell it to somebody who's really buying because I'm not. Right. So what do I say? It, it, be genuine. Be genuine and don't say, oh, I was looking up somebody else and I saw you and you're so beautiful. Because if you would have told me that in my 20s, I would have said, okay. But now... Who are some people who've been the most influential to you in your life and your passions and where you got today? Writing, I would say Jackie Collins and Anne Rice. Um, Anne Rice because of her descriptions and Jackie Collins because they were spicy and she she had this bigger-than-life lifestyle. Um, bass playing, I would have to say John Taylor from Duran um, and Gary Beers from Excess. Those were two of my biggest influences back in the day. As far as living my life, biggest influence, you know, one thing my husband used to say was go with the flow. And I guess now, more than ever, I try to listen to that. So I would have to say he is a huge influence at this moment. But there's not a lot of people that have influenced my life. I mean, I guess in a way without knowing they have. But as far as stand-ups, there's only a handful. All right. What has been the biggest failure in the last year and why do you think that happened? My husband passing away was a big, I wouldn't say it's a big failure because, I mean, that was something that we knew was coming. But it totally, completely changed my life. That was something that, yeah, changed my life and... It's no different than a failure because all of a sudden everything in your life has been completely and utterly changed. Right. Just like if you fail something. I mean, when you fail something, you lose something usually. So in this situation, even though it wasn't a real fail, it completely changed my life. I wouldn't have started my podcast because I didn't have the time and I wouldn't be trying to, to relearn who I am because you have to do that after 17 years. That must be an interesting journey, trying to relearn yourself and a lot of self-reflection. It is, because you're sitting there after, if you go back in time and you look at who you were 17 years ago, it's kind of like, okay, I'm not that person anymore. I've grown, I've learned, 
I've gone through this journey. I've gone through this journey of taking care of somebody. I've watched his parents go through a similar journey. And at one point, his father and I had the same role of caregiver. He was caring for his wife, and I was caring for my husband. And to see that mirrored image, even though I was much younger, we still related to each other because we understood. And that's the hardest thing on that journey is you know that there's no positive outcome. There's always going to be an end game. And if I go back in time and go back to that better two statement of, of saying it's better to love you and lose you, I would still stick by that because he enriched my life for those years. But it's still a hard journey because now, yeah, I have to sit here and go, okay, I had to make choices about weight. I had to make choices about getting healthy for myself because he's not here. I have to live my life now. I can't sit here and allow myself to be sucked under by grief. Even though it comes and goes, grief is not a linear thing. This has proven to be who I am and who my who my tribe is, who my family is. And it doesn't necessarily mean by blood. I um, lost my sister in uh, 2016, so I, kinda, get I get part of what you're saying, yeah. When we lose somebody, it sticks with you. I mean, it'll be 30 years that my mom's gone this year. And that was not the perfect relationship, but... I still think about her, you know, still there. I still think about my grandmothers, and I still think about my in-laws that have passed, because those people, I guess it goes back to that influence thing, <laughs> even though even though they offered you a certain amount of influence in your life, but they also offered you memories and stories and things that can make you smile or cry. All right. So. Did you uh, like Average Hitchcock in his earlier movies? scary stuff so as long as it was more of a thriller type thing i was more embracing of it than saying i'm a big hitchcock fan because i can't i can't say um i was intrigued with the fact that um i did watch north by northwest as we were going to discuss and i had watched like the documentary with uh, Abe, uh eva so i watched the documentary and they talked about who they originally wanted to cast in the roles and jimmy stewart was one of them yeah, I read about that. And Sid Charisse, the dancer, was the other. And I was just kind of like, I that would not have been the same movie. It would have been, I, I like him, you know, Jimmy Stewart, while he's a great actor and he has, a, I, he was very talented, I can't see him in that role. I just can't. So, yeah, just the accent and, and everything. He didn't have the, the charisma, I don't think, to pull it off. All right. You think uh, Cary Grant was the uh, right choice? watch a lot of Amazon Prime? Uh, I used to. I don't watch a lot of TV now because I'm trying to write two books, okay. do a podcast, getting everything in order in my life, so uh, I don't get to watch a lot of TV. So what, what about it? Uh, there's a show, Goliath, with Billy Bob Thornton. I don't know if you've heard of that show. I've heard of it, but I haven't. I don't know enough about it. If well, I watch anything, it's either on Hulu or Netflix. Alright, well, um, from what I read, that whole season two of that show, the whole season's based off of this movie. 
which is kind of crazy. Here's the thing. Hitchcock would be proud to know that he inspired so many other people, I'm sure. That's true. He was definitely ahead of his time. Pretty smart guy. Yeah. Though I have to say, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about North by Northwest. I, I have to I have to laugh because I'm watching it, and here they are allegedly climbing, scaling Mount Rushmore, and they're in heels, regular sole shoes, no gloves. And yes, she did actually get hurt when they were working in the studio on the mock-up. Right. Um. But I mean, it's just kind of like the ridiculousness of it, knowing what how people climb rocks now. Versus back then, that was very acceptable. People in the movie theater have been like, oh my gosh, yes. Nowadays, you're like, come on, I can barely walk outside in rain and then go on a tile floor in my office shoes and not slip. And you're going to go scaling a mountain? Really? The crazy thing was the actual studio wanted to actually film it on the actual Mount Rushmore. The estate wouldn't let them. They had to create like a background that looked like it. Commissions had no way. Um... and it would cause some problems, but you have a whole liability aspect of yeah. how do you tether these people? I mean, they, you know, watching the documentary, they're showing clips of her. She's like this far off the floor when she's hanging off the mountain. But if you're doing this in, re- in real time, granted, a stunt double would have been there, but still, it, it's, you know, kind of crazy when you think about it. Yeah. It was nice seeing a, a young Martin Landau. I don't think I know who that is, actually. Uh, Martin Landau did a lot of things. He he was in Ed Wood. He was in. Now I'm going to sit here and break. Am I going to break? Um, <laughs> Sleepy Hollow. I'm going to sit here and name Johnny Depp movies. But, um, he actually won an Oscar in his later years, and he was kind of the hint, the main henchman throughout the movie. Not the bad guy, but the henchman. So. All right. Did you feel like the movie was pretty predictable? turns but i mean like i said i was watching it and and immediately like as soon as i hit the train i'm like okay so we're at the taurus or i'm watching the taurus <laughs> even though i knew this predated that it was still just one of those things where it's like all right the tourist happens on a train as well and there's a lot of little nods in there but it was a predictable i wouldn't say it was totally predictable no it was like you said ahead of its time because basically i can sit down and watch a tv show when i do watch tv and the most annoying thing is for, and you're a writer as well, that you can figure out the ending way before anything else. And you're like, okay, that's the killer. And my husband will look at me and go, why, why do you say that? And I'm like, just watch. <laughs> sure enough. So, I mean, it, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't think it was so predictable that it was it made it boring. Right. It was still, there was still enough going on in there. And yet there was still suspense, which was good. So. It um, felt fast pace and not so slow pace that make you go to sleep I felt like and I'm, after watching this I almost felt like um, the earlier James Bond movies with Sean Connery kind of copied this movie a lot of ways possibly I mean the Bond movie started out as books first so I mean you don't it's hard to say if Ian Fleming didn't pick up some stuff from Hitchcock Right. You know, and decide I'm gonna I'm gonna turn the spy world into this. So it's very plausible. I um really like his uh, directing style. I felt like he did a really good job. 
making you uh, care about the characters immediately, where a lot of movies or shows, you have to watch it for several minutes before you care about someone. And then there's movies like Showgirls that um, you watch, and by the end of the movie, you're kind of going, well, why are you doing this? You had everything you wanted. <laughs> and you really don't care about the character. You know, but Showgirls, it, it's an acquired taste, and I, it's a cult favorite for some, and I'm not going to totally knock because I've watched it more than once, but... That's it's hard for me to watch a movie if I don't like any of the characters. I feel like you can have a good story, but if you don't have good characters, why am I watching this? You know, there's a movie called The Cell that Jennifer Lopez did in the late '90s, early 2000s, and the one reason I would recommend watching it if you haven't seen it is the visual. Turn the sound down. the The way it was filmed, the colors in it are just so outstanding that the visualization is just a thing of beauty. Cinematography is a wonderful thing. The movie itself was lacking, but I would say visually it was stunning. And so sometimes there was a movie uh, in the late 80s that my friends and I liked, the, the actor that was in there, but his accent in the movie was awful, and the movie was bad, so, yeah, we turned down the volume and watched the movie that way and just had a conversation. Yes, call it sexist, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, I'm sure there's guys that have done that, too, so. I like how he um, added comedy into the mix of the movie. I felt like the comedy gave the movie a lot more entertainment value. Yes, and, like, the drunk driving scene, that was pretty pretty amusing because it's like if he was so obliterated how did he manage to um be that cognitive at times and manage to swerve but one thing i will say there was and i know you don't know about this but back in the late 70s early 80s there was a game show called screen test and the reason i'm there's a reason i'm bringing this up because there were, because the car scenes and stuff reminded me of that because part of the part of the contest was you get to win a screen test. And one of the little things was you would sit in a car and they would, this was prior to green screen, they would have the whole mock-up of driving through traffic or whatever. And so watching this movie, it was kind of like, I remember that game show because it doesn't hold up. The graphics, that kind of graphics, just some of the Star Wars graphics don't hold up. Right. Um, but that it just reminded me of that. And I almost appreciate that more. Because even though it doesn't really totally work, it works better than some bad CGI that you can really see as, especially if you're watching on TV. The Blade. Have you seen the original Blade? I have not. I do have it in my library, but I haven't watched them yet. The, the original Blade. At the very end, there's a really bad CGI scene. And I've watched it since it came out. At the time it came out, I was like, oh, wow, cool. But since it came out, it's just kind of like, and I think the Scorpion, one of the Mummy movies where The Rock is the Scorpion King, when he's finished, that character's initially introduced, same thing, bad CGI. So I almost appreciate the fact that, even though I was saying, it doesn't hold up really, the, the whole driving in the car, Right. it's still somewhat better looking than some of the CGI that we have now. Which is kind of funny, have, since this is yeah. like before the 60s. not so technical. There's not so many things to deteriorate over time. 
Right. They can keep the pureness of it. Where, I mean, even there's a scene, I think it's, I know, take my Star Wars card away from me. My, the first three were my jam. Uh, <laughs> I think it's the second in the newer, the second in the first three. We're going back to with Jar Jar and stuff. And Padme and Anakin are out in a field somewhere. And they're right. They're supposed to be on this creature, and the creature's bucking them or whatever. That is so bad. The CGI on that scene is so bad, but it made it into the film. Right. So, my uh, favorite scene of the film, comical wise, is the auction. I thought that was uh, pretty clever and pretty well written. Yeah, and not only was it go you know, back, back to the scene a little bit before that, the same scene but a little bit prior before. They walk out. The tension there when he walks in between the girl and the villain and him, it's all there for you to see. You're, you're not sure who she is. You're not sure what she, what role she's playing. Is she a double agent? Is she really a bad person? Is she resetting him? I mean, you never, that's the one thing, you're trying to figure that out, for sure. You knew she was in contact with him. Yeah, but um, I felt like in the 30-minute mark of the movie or somewhere there with the uh, table of the government agents, I felt like them saying that that female was a spy for them and that um, George Kaplan doesn't exist, I felt like yeah. that took that hurt the movie a lot because it would have made it more interesting if you thought George Kaplan was a real person and if you thought that the lady was an actual bad guy. The thing is, even though they said that, to me, for me personally, you still saw the loyalty she had for him and the fact that she had set who they thought Kaplan was um, up to try to get him killed. That made me still doubt whether she was really loyal. Okay. Which brings me to the scene with the, the, the crop duster. Right. Because the way that was filmed, I mean, the documentary was actually pretty interesting because the way that was filmed, they couldn't have him ducking this. They couldn't have him ducking the, the crop duster. So, you know, when they came to filming close things, they filmed this in, in-house in the studio. But the plane, you know, yeah, the plane was buzzing them, and, and apparently it was hotter than anything out there in the desert where they filmed it. But... You know, even the plane crashing into the tanker truck, that was a big stunt back. Right. And they did go over budget slightly, and they went over their shooting schedule. And when they went over their shooting schedule, Terry Grant started getting 5000 a day. I bet he was pretty <laughs> happy about that. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's a good movie. It does hold up. And I mean, when I told one of my friends I was watching, she's like, oh, it's a great movie. So for people to sit there and still talk about it to this day, that's a testament of the, the movie itself, and, you know, it's part of Hitchcock's legacy. I re read something where Hitchcock was saying something where he wanted to make this movie his legacy, because I think, I know The Birds came out a few years after this, but I'm pretty sure this movie is one of his last ones he did. The interesting thing about um, Hitchcock is when he sold this to the studio, he had... He was talking with the writer, and he had an idea for a different project. And so to convince the studio to make this movie, he sold them that they were going to get two movies. 
which they only got one. <laughs> the other one never ended, ended up. But, you know, this is why, I, I mean, the documentary was actually really fascinating because they interviewed his daughter. And how he met his wife was she was a, she was a cutter at the time. And he was just basically an AD. And so he couldn't really talk to her. Once, you know, even though he'd work with her, he couldn't say anything. He couldn't ask her out. They, they had a nice friendship, but they couldn't really talk. And once he started directing, then she could talk to him. Because apparently in studio land, she had a higher position than him. And so therefore, I can't talk to you. Yeah, that, that seems like that'd be a lot of family drama right there. Well, and they weren't, they weren't married at the time or anything. So that finally, once he started directing, that's when they were like, okay. And she worked on every picture with him. I like directors like Average Hitchcock, M. Night Shyamalan, Quentin Tarantino, where they can own their own movies. I think it's pretty cool when the director does that. Yeah, I mean, it, it gives it a nod. Um, even even if a writer appears in a movie that they are, you know, Stephen King, I think, has been in a couple of his, and it, it gives a nod to their craftsmanship and that they respect the movie. You know, Anne Rice, when she... Uh, she had put out Interview with a Vampire a long time ago in the 70s. And they, the studio kept trying to do something with it, kept trying to do something with it, and they kept pushing it off. And finally they decided, okay, we're going to do it. At the time when it was created, they picked Tom Cruise, and she was not pleased in the least. <laughs> Ultimately, you know, she's like, yeah, okay. And now they're turning that series into something on AMC. It's going to have its own legs now. But at the time, she was just mortified that I don't want this. And, and that's something with, as a writer, giving your book up to something, to someone, unless you retain creative control, which you did not, you lose out. Um, there's, a mo- there's a TV show now called Sex Life on Netflix, and it's based on a book, 44, I think 44 Dates. Title exactly. But the title's been changed, and it's not, ex- I have a friend who read the book, and she's like, it's nothing like the book. The author says, well, there's some nods in there. There's certain things that are in there, certain lines that are in there, but her work has been changed. In fact, it's not even saying based on a book by. So as a writer, there's a lot of things you have to think about when you decide to, if somebody comes not going to pick up your script or your book. I fully agree with that. I'll be right back after this short break. have to be careful because I know you're a screenwriter. You have to be careful about who you pitch it to because somebody can say, hey, I like your idea, but I'm going to take it and I'm going to change it and I'm not going to pay you. Yeah, I actually uh, paid like 300 bucks to copyright, so that wouldn't happen. <laughs> yeah, and th- but here's the thing. Even though that copyright's there, um, there's a couple of things. Even though the copyright's there, somebody can still take it and change it. And then you have to have the money to sue them. They copy exactly. Oh, uh, I was kind of hoping paying the certain amount of money will <laughs> cover all of that, but no, I mean, it, no, you did right, you did right, and I recommend anybody getting their stuff copyrighted. But, like, for me as an author, there's these pirate sites, in fact, and I, I this cracked me up. My husband joked around that I finally made it. Um, I have pirate sites that I have my books copyrighted, pirate sites that say they have my books time it's just a phishing scam or they're just you know they don't really have it 
they're just trying to get your credit card information or to click you you to click on the link so they can give you a virus. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's so bad that one of my books on Goodreads that is coming out that is not done. In fact, I'm still working on it. Um, they were alleging that they had it. Even gave it a five star review by somebody else who had reviewed a book, one of my other books. <laughs> but people are like, "Oh, I don't want to pay for a book," and there you go. So, I'm gonna go get a free book. No, you're not. You're gonna get a virus, or your credit card's gonna be hacked. But whatever. Oh, Just that's fine. For thought. Yeah. Protect yourself. I've uh, definitely done a lot of stupid mistakes getting viruses or whatever. One time I was trying to watch a movie off a pirating service on a tablet, and the tablet got so bad that I could never use it again. Yeah. I mean, that's the, you, you have to be careful in situations like this because you don't know what virus you may get. So I always say this. If somebody really wants to read a book, one of my books, and they can't afford it, I will send you a copy. Reach out to me. Don't be stupid. Right. I did uh, feel like this film never really had a wasted moment on screen, so I liked it that too. Felt like everything that was there was needed. Yes, I would agree. However, there's there's a fun fact. There's a scene when they're in the cafeteria, and I'm not going to give too much away. But um, when they're in the cafeteria, and the whole decoy thing is set up, and there's a kid in the background that before the thing happens, he's doing this. <laughs> so it's a giveaway because, you know, he's got his hand covered, covering his ears. And they're like, of all the takes for them to use, they use that one. So That's funny. I mean, I think everything moved very, very quickly. There was enough chemistry between the two main characters. The only thing that was kind of odd was how I think she was hanging off the cliff in one scene, and then the next scene, they're in the, the train. Right. It was just kind of like, what? <laughs> <laughs> we, we skipped from one thing right to the other. But, I mean, I guess it's self-explanatory, but it was just kind of like, that was the only thing that was a little jarring about it. Yeah. I especially liked the dialogue in this movie. I feel like uh, any good movie has to have good dialogue. I didn't think it was boring. Dialogue is important. I mean, whether it be a movie or or a book, you have to have something that's going to seem realistic and something that's not cliche. Even though we're watching this movie, you know, 50 years later, it still has a freshness to it. One thing that I had learned, too, was the wardrobe. MGM was was trying to put them, her in certain outfits, and Hitchcock's like, no, this is all garbage. So he took her to Bird Off. And bought her uh, off the rack wardrobe. So like that red dress she has on, that's off the rack. It's not a studio dress. It's it was off the rack. He's like he didn't like how they were gonna dress her. He had an image of what he saw, and and for a director to stay true to his image or you know true to his vision, that says a lot because some directors don't. Right. Some directors just go okay, whatever. We have studio. We have a we have a budget. We have to deal with. And now with so many the avenues of production. You have high-grade production, and then you have some very low-budget production. And I've worked on low-budget productions, and low-budget productions, you're, you're scripting and scraping. So I, I appreciate that even though he went the, the off-the-rack route, clothes were still beautiful. Here's now, what kind of low-budget production did you work on? I worked on a TV show, um, a long story, and I had a lot of roles. 
I had answered a ad in a paper here called the Chicago Reader. There was an ad in there for an actress, a role for an actress, so I auditioned, and I got the role, and then one of the producers passed away, and the production shut down, and then when we came back, one of the producers decided that they wanted, I did the role for a bit, and then she decided she wanted my role. So then I became a marketing person, and then from the marketing person, when we actually, so that production got shut down, then, then they decided we're going to produce it again. This time, we're going to make you line producer, and we're going to make you in charge of the money, and we're going to make you in charge of this. We're going to make, so basically, I, I was working, I did sleep, but I was on call 24-7, and the show was called The Wacky World of Kitchener Rock, and it was about a cooking show that was, yeah, it, it kind of, in a way, was ahead of its time, because it was about a bakery run by... Um, gentleman who was gay and his sister who was a dominatrix and they were making naughty cookies and the role that i actually had originally played was as an ex-porn star store that <laughs> star who had an alcohol problem <laughs> and my audition i ended up having to uh fake an orgasm uh talk about a banana in a sexual sense and then do a mock cooking show where I basically played the Marilyn Monroe type character and had to improv the whole thing and talked about how, I don't even know how I went here, but catching my husband cheating with me. And I got the role. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it was, a, it was a, and I mean, ultimately we filmed six episodes and I, I still acted. I ended up playing an old woman bodyguard and a, a girl who talked to her chest um, really close. Uh, so my boobs would grow, and um, we ended up taking it to the National Television Association Producers event in New Orleans, and I got to meet a lot of a lot of people. Got to see Zena or Lucy Lawless uh, at a panel, and got to meet a, couple, a lot of different people. So it was a wild ride. I got you know the, one of the producers. She didn't want to go to the theater, so I got to go to the theater and sit in her front row seat. I mean. It had a lot of perks, and it was an adventure, and, and I don't regret it, and I look at it, and we never sold it. We did six episodes. It was the best summer job I ever had. I worked my ass off, but it was a great job. But it so, never got national attention? Nah, nah. And, I mean, there was one, one of the things, and since you like comedy, you will appreciate this, and so one of the, the second time when I wasn't actually really part of it, I got brought in as a, a bit player, and... I ended up being a British opera singer, and um, I went to the bakery to pick up pies, and a parent, and for some reason, you know, they thought I would be the perfect person to play this British opera singer. I could, I could take a British accent, um, but anyway, I ended up with pie in my face, and the, the pie just kind of stuck there, and then fell, and it, it was... It was nasty. It was fun. It was nasty. We had pie all over. And, you know, of course, I had to say, well, I never it stormed out of the place because, you know, I'm British and proper and all. So, yeah. So. Years ago, I uh, started a YouTube channel where I did film reviews and I did the Kingsman movies and I tried so hard to get the British accent down 
head, it sounded more Irish than anything else. I don't know. If you actually go on, on my TikTok, I read part of my days with the Dark Muse with a British accent. And I've, I've had a couple people tell me nice accents. Um, I used to like British bands, so it just became something that my friends and I did. We actually, there's a film that fortunately nobody else has, um, that we went to the mall. This was late 80s. We went to the mall with a big camcorder and two guy friends, and her and I walked through the mall faking an accent, faking a British accent, saying we were traveling, and um, we had people going, is this going to be on TV? And posing and all sorts of stuff. The girl at, at the went to Hardee's and she like she was all beside herself. She's like, Oh, you talk so proper and stuff, I can't believe I'm like okay. So yeah, it was it was an, an advantage. It was it was an interesting thing, but I've had I've convinced people I was British. I <laughs> I went out on a Friday night with some coworkers and one was a temp and she's like, I'm we're gonna pick up my friend. And I don't want you to tell her you're not British. I want you to, as soon as she gets in the car, run with it. I'm like, okay, fine. So we pick her up. I'm this British person all the way through. We go to this bar. I have men buying us drinks all night. I have this whole backstory in my head about where I'm from, which really, when I look back, I didn't have a good backstory. But they bought drinks all night and everything else. We get in the car. We're about to drop me off. And I look at the girl, and I start talking in a regular voice. And she goes, what? I'm like... English. <laughs> She's like, but I'm like, that's so, funny. Yeah, I mean, it, it's something that I learned. To, in fact, I have an English friend who, who joked. She's like, you actually do that pretty well. You, your Amer- your English accent is better than my American accent. So, yeah. yeah. I think I read that you uh, were part of the film negotiator. You, uh, I was. Uh, what did you do for that I movie? Was I was an extra. Um, and actually, so it was. It was supposed to be a warm day. I showed up on set with a bunch of other. We were just street scene scenery people, um, and I didn't have a coat. So I go. To, they're like, go to wardrobe. They'll get you a coat. I'm like, okay. They gave me this twelve hundred dollar Armani jacket. <laughs> Armani jacket, but like, I took walk, walk out of here right now and make more than I'm going to make today. <laughs> I didn't do it, but yeah, I got to wear this lovely jacket and I will say this, um, part of what I did got cut out because in film, they tend to like to wet the sidewalks. They like to wet the concrete because it looks better. And this one girl, we were supposed to be evacuating the building. And this girl comes running out and she slips and busts her ass. And that got cut. And also, a lot of people that they ended up with food poisoning because the, the food was, something was wrong with it. But it was a long shoot. It was, we worked extra long and we shot some stuff in the lobby. Um, I didn't really get to see anybody on set that day. So it wasn't anything big. Now, when I worked at my best friend's wedding, I was fortunate enough to have Julie Roberts run right in front of me. But that, that is, the funny thing about that is, that was one of the last ones picked. I'm like, I'm going to get stuck somewhere. And it was like, nope, there she is. But the funny thing is, they're like, okay, so the bread truck is going to pull right up to the curb. And so you have this truck coming, and it's speeding. Now, human nature will tell you that you're 
to stop, look, and go, what the heck's going on? No, no, no. I want you to just keep walking with your friend and act like nothing's going on. <laughs> okay. And so the truck pulls up, and we did this, I can't tell you how many times, and there was a stunt person at one point before Julia starts walking by. And there's another car. So there's Julia, the, the bread truck, and then the car's going to around the corner. And they're telling all the extras over here, don't worry, you're safe, keep walking. All right, so Julia Roberts comes running by, and like I said, we're not supposed to look, but you know, human nature in real life. <laughs> this is not how this scene really would play out. In, in real life, everybody would have stopped and been like, what the hell's going on? No, no, we're going to keep, all right, so fine. So anyway, it's a pretty, we, we do this over and over and over again, fine. So they're filming on the other side, the car comes whipping around. Apparently, at one point, the car jumped the curb and broke the axle. It didn't hit anybody. But, you know, you're fine. You'll be safe. Just walk by. <laughs> I wasn't in that group. I was, because they keep you in a little group. And you keep doing the same thing over. I worked at my best friend's wedding several times, and it was fun. And I also got to drive a little bit. Um, and I worked on one other smaller movie, which that that was actually fun, because I got to do have professional makeup done and sit in a chair because I was only one of four extras but it was like we started shooting at midnight that'd be fun so, to be an extra in the movie yes you know here's the thing when I remember when my best friend's wedding came out it was kind of like oh okay we're gonna go to the theater to see this it's this gonna be so awesome I'm sure I'm gonna be on screen because Julia runs right past me I'm a blur <laughs> that sucks <laughs> I'm like I'm a blur. <laughs> did but, you did you ever buy the DVD and try to pause the screen at the right time to see? It's the way it was the way it was shot. They oh. shot us deliberately blurry. So even if you pause, yeah, I have the yes, I own the DVD. Um, <laughs> and yes, I've looked at the DVD of the Negotiator, and I can't find me anywhere, and that's fine too. The movie Since You've Been Gone that David Schwimmer did. You can see me. I'm walking across the street. I mean, being an extra is fun. It's a lot of work. It's more work than than you realize because you're either sitting sitting around doing absolutely nothing for a long period of time, or you're redoing and redoing. And then there's a continuity aspect that you better make sure you look exactly the same if you break the lunch and come back. And that's the same thing with being an actor. You have right. to make sure that continuity is there. And if it's not, you know. You're right. That's one thing about like so many movies. Or like uh, 24. Have you ever seen the TV show 24? With... No, but I, I know it. Well, every single scene, he's wearing different clothes. He His hair is different. And so that's like one annoying thing about that show. It's not, it's supposed to take place in an hour. Uh, well, how did he have time to change so many outfits in one hour? <laughs> one, one movie that is similar, but I mean, they are good with the continuity, is Nick of Time. Yes, once again, a Johnny Depp movie. And that's supposed to be shot, they show you the clock that's running because his daughter has been kidnapped and he's supposed to be doing something. He's trying to, he has to do something that they want him to do, assassinate somebody in order to get his daughter back. And so you're watching the clock as he's going through this. So it's very Hitchcockian because it's up to be. So. Do you have any, uh, final thoughts on the movie or anything? I think the movie 
I think the movie has uh, stands the test of time. I think it's uh, it's something that I think young filmmakers can learn from. Right. You can see how something was done without all the technical aspects of CGI. You can see a script that's pure. It's very innocent. And, you know, based on what you look at nowadays, uh, a death scene. Somebody dies now. It's all graphic and everything. Where everything here, including the sex, was all left to your imagination. And sometimes, you know, and don't get me wrong, I love Kill Bill. I think Kill Bill is an awesome movie, and that's graphic as anything when it comes to gore. But there's something to be said sometimes to leave things to the imagination. Right. And I think that you can look back and look at the acting and look at the purity of a lot of these things. I mean, you know, just the sheer fact that the ridiculousness of, well, he's not Kaplan. I'm not, you know, he keeps saying I'm not Kaplan, and nowadays it's like, oh, there's so many ways we could have been able to ascertain that this is not really Kaplan. Right. But yet... Then you didn't have that, right? And that that that's one of the reasons why I've chosen to write my books. They're set in the '80s and '90s. So the '90s, yeah, we have some technology, but so it, it lends a different flavor because now you can find anybody anywhere, but because of the cell phone. I like to write stories that take place in the '80s. I would have loved to have grown up in the '80s. It seems like it would have been a pretty cool time to be alive. It was. It was I had graduated high school and. Um, started my life in the 80s. I mean, it was a different time. Growing up in the 70s was different. I mean, you, you, could, you could ride around the back of a pickup truck and not have a problem. Nowadays, that would be a big no-no. And, I mean, just things, there's a lot, I don't want to say a lot more innocence, but you didn't have as much stress. Right. You didn't have the stress of being bullied on social media. You didn't have the stress of having to be perfect all the time. Right. I mean, I think I think we have a lot more stress because we have technology, and I like technology, but I think it, it creates a lot of stress for us. But it has opened doors too, because as an author, I wouldn't have my books published. Right. And if you and I'll add this, because you said I could add it, whatever I want. If right. people want to find me, they can find me at dmnedom.com, which is n e e d o m. I have a book called My Days with the Dark Muse, which is a bass player's journal, and it's very dark and twisted. And then I have a romantic suspense, which is Love is Worth Waiting For. And I'll have another book hopefully out in the fall. And I um, read the first 100 pages of the Dark Muse, and it's written very well. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. It's, it's a dark, twisted tale. <laughs> definitely, well, definitely think... twisted. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that, that's the thing about it is like, I don't, I think we all look at celebrity and musicians as being this perfect person and if anything that i try to write in that book it's a very flawed right so i think that we, we should look at people more as human beings than celebrity right i feel like people put a god factor on a celebrity yeah and i mean the britney spears thing is playing that completely out when you look at that that why she had basically a nervous breakdown if you had somebody following you all the time and you couldn't walk away and you had you couldn't get a moment's peace what would you do? Right. So. There's this uh, TikTok video I was watching of um, Justin Bieber going to his house, and he couldn't even get into his own house because all his fans, paparazzi, were blocking him from going to his house. And he just completely uh, broke down because all he wanted to do was go to his home. 
and people took that and made it look like he was being a bad guy by re-editing stuff. Well, and that's the thing about technology now is that can be re-edited and it can be you can paint it however you want it to. There was there's a video called Saint Louis Silver Duran Duran um, documentary, and they actually sent a limo with um, a camera in it through a crowd of fans. Now, mind you, they didn't just send it willy nilly. It wasn't you know bad slow, and they sent the can. They had I think cameras in there. And you could hear the girls beating on the windows and the car and everything. And if you put yourself in that situation, that's high anxiety. Right. There was a time when I had a friend who won a contest, and we got limousine service to and from a concert. And we actually had people follow us back to our hotel because they thought we were the band. And we're driving down the freeway. And I realize that there's people following us, and I have a glass. We have glasses in the back of the car, and I had my bracelets and everything because back then that was the thing. And I roll down the window just enough, and I take my glass and I stick it out the window, and the girls are like screaming, and I'm like, "This is really bad of me to do." I know. So I get to the hotel, which is a ways away, and they they jump out the car, and the limo driver's like, "Do you want me to stay here for a minute or two before I get out?" I'm like, "Sure." And they're outside, and they have to pay for this. And granted, I've met Dan, so I, I sound like a complete bitch right now, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry to curse. Um, but they got out. When we got out, the looks on their faces was just complete disappointment. And I hated doing that. But I also thought, you should know better. Right. They're not going to travel in a limo. They're going to travel in a van, because that's going to be much easier to deal with. So, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, I know that sounds awful, but it was nice to be a rock star for a minute. Do you have any albums out when you were rock star for a little while? No. Did you write any songs? Uh, I was a bass player, and um, I was in a couple of bands, but we know, and I was a backup singer in one band, but we never, I never have it. The only thing I have, a, have is a couple of karaoke things, but I never... I never actually got to put anything in. Oh. But so now, I, I mean, I, I tinker now with my bass here and there, but I'm a writer. I write about that. And, and the thing is, and this is what I want to say about that limo thing, while it may seem really crappy, I mean, it's great for my writing. Because, <laughs> yeah. I, well, I mean, I know what it feels like to be that, that rock star yeah. in that car and having those fans come out to, to get your autograph. I know what it feels like.
influence, that is, that's a big compliment that I've created something that not only connects with other people, that they learn something, they feel something, but they feel it's a safe space. Right. So. And I listened to uh, a few episodes of your Better Two podcast, and I really liked the way you did it, and I thought it was really good, and just having people open up and tell their stories and just make people, you never know who's going through what, and it's just... Exactly. I mean, there was one gentleman that I interviewed, and he's a vet, and he has struggled with sobriety, and that interview was a very hard interview because I watched him tear up. I didn't edit it out. And you, I don't know that you can really see it on camera, but for me, when I was taping it, I saw it. And <clears throat> excuse me. And to have somebody willing to be vulnerable that you don't know, right. but you can, but they're willing to open up and be vulnerable while you're talking to them, says a lot. And it makes me feel that I know that there's somebody out there who's struggling. And maybe now they know that they're not alone. Some. Somebody actually told me that the other day, that listening to Guy's podcast, which is another guy who, he's a recovered alcoholic. He's like, it made me realize, it made me feel that I wasn't alone. And that storytelling and connecting with somebody like that is important. So. I feel like you and the people that come on your show are very uh, brave and willing to just vote so much of your personal life and just stuff that a lot of people would want to keep private, but you're doing it to help people and let people know they're not alone. I just think that's very brave of you. Thank you. At a, cer- at a certain point, I mean, I, I belong to a service where I get my guests actually have, most of them have sought me out. And one of the, the hardest things I will say is when I'm looking at somebody's bio and like I had a neuroscientist on and immediately I'm sitting here going, wow, this is going to be way out of my depth. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm talking to a neuroscientist scientist or talking to somebody with a PhD, I'm just like, yeah, yeah, I don't know that I can do this, but I have, and the, the fact of the matter goes back to the celebrity thing, we're all human, right. and we all have stories, and it doesn't matter what title we have, we all, we all have a connection to me, right. so I think, I think that's why it's important, and even you having your own podcast, you're, you're, you're talking about a movie that some people may not have even thought about watching. I mean, I'll be honest, I've never watched it. This was my first time watching it, and I'm glad you reached out because I got to watch a movie that I most likely would never have watched. Right. And I think being open to experiences is a good thing for a lot of people. I I love old films because I feel like there's so much more uh, authenticness and original to it than newer films. All the blood and gore. I used to watch AMC a long time ago in the 80s. I used to love AMC. And, you know, dare I say my big heroine when I was growing up was Marilyn Monroe. You know, in, in the late 80s, she was it. I had I had all sorts of books from her, which I still do, and I would collect things. And the fact is, I liked the older movies because there was class. There was, cl- you know, there was a classiness to it. When we used to go to the theaters in the 80s, not the movie theater, but the actual theater, we would dress to go to the theater. Yeah. You wouldn't go, you wouldn't dare step in the foot theater in jeans. That would be like a big faux pas. And that's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> that's crazy. So, I mean, I appreciate the fact that there used to be glamour. There used to be just this whole style. And now it's kind of like, eh, 
Right. Well, comfort's nice. Sometimes it's nice to, to jazz it up. Right. Well, I appreciate you uh, coming on to my uh, show, and I appreciate talking to you. Uh, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. No problem. Would you be interested in doing this again sometime in the future? Sure. All right. Um, you said you like Kill Bill a lot. You want to review Kill Bill? Sure. All right. Well, um, I can't really think of anything else to talk about unless you got more to share. Well, we can always save it for next time. True. Well, um, I hope you have a wonderful day, wonderful week, and it was so nice to get to talk to you. So thank you. You're welcome, and thank you for having me, and let me know when you want to do Kill Bill. All right. Okay. All Take right. care. You too. Have a good fourth. All right. You too. Bye-bye. If you would like to be the next guest on Faithful Film Fanatic, where I do film reviews, or you'd like to give me a suggestion, something that you may like or did not like, or, hey, if you just want to, Message me and talk to me about movies. My Facebook is Terry Roy. TikTok, Terry Roy. Instagram, RedHunter underscore 16. Twitter, Faithful Film Fanatic. My Gmail is ffilmfanatic99 at gmail.com. I hope to hear from you guys. And until next time, God bless. And I hope you guys all have a great evening.